It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. We've got a lot to get through. We've got a lot to get through. Eric Wasson's going to give us an update on all things Capitol Hill coming from Congress. He's Bloomberg's congressional reporter. Phase four of the stimulus. Is there going to be another round of stimulus? This is President Trump meets with Republican senators and you've got the PPP vote. The House is going to vote on changes to small business program next week. Next week, folks, they say... They say it's all for the small businesses, half of the U.S. economy made by small businesses. Eric's going to give us the latest on that, all the social distancing going up in the halls of Congress. Max Abelson, Bloomberg Businessweek reporter on former Vice President Joe Biden's Wall Street pals. They think they have his ear, despite his progressive move to the left, do they? Can Biden walk this tightrope in the era of AOC and Senator Elizabeth Warren? And David Tafiori is here, former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor, a good friend of the program. It's been a minute. He hasn't been on all pandemic. I said, where's David? Barada said, we'll get David booked. He is going to give us all of on his recent op-ed, recent op-ed in the Hill newspaper about the effect that COVID-19 pandemic is having on ISIS and terrorism. And I'm going to ask him about China. Speaking of uh, the economy and COVID-19, our good friends at the McKinsey Global Institute, Dr. Michael Chu, is going to check in with us on the business economics and research arm of that as well, talking about medical innovation. So we have a, every topic covered from policy, politics to medicine, hydroxychloroquine, Maryland to expand testing for asymptomatic people, which is another step, is another step uh, towards lifting the restrictions. This, as 82 new fatalities have been reported in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Maryland to expand virus testing for people with no symptoms. That's a, a step in the right direction. And uh, and meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser set to have a press conference tomorrow in which she could announce the phase one opening, or what's going to happen on phase one on June 8th. I don't know. We're going to get new details from the mayor's office as early as tomorrow. So that's what's happening inside of the Beltway. Let's talk Congress. Eric Wasson's on the line. Bloomberg congressional reporter. Eric, are we going to get a phase four stimulus? What do we know with Trump's meeting with Republican senators? Well, look, it's not going to be anytime soon. Uh, basically, Mitch McConnell, uh, the president, um, Secretary Mnuchin, they're all on the same page right now and saying, 
they want to wait. And really, uh, if you talk to Republicans, they feel that uh, rushing out and doing more stimulus might actually encourage states to uh, keep the lockdowns in place, and they don't want to provide any kind of incentive for that. They really want to see, you know, obviously with a proviso that should be safe, if possible, states reopen because that's the only way to get out of this. So we're really seeing them slow walk this. The Senate is going to leave town tomorrow at noon after one more confirmation vote and not come back for, for nearly two weeks, uh, at which point that uh, would be the earliest that they could vote on stimulus. But I don't even see it in that week. McConnell's talking about perhaps doing a bill later in June. So, uh, you know, as far as the $3 trillion package that, uh, that that the House produced, that's going nowhere and, uh, and the real fight is over unemployment insurance. So the Democrats really want to extend that into next January, this extra boost of $600 per week. But Republicans are saying that's creating a perverse incentive, that there are people, especially in the southern states, who are low-wage states, that would have this perverse incentive not to try to look for work or go back to work. And they do not want to see that happen. So it's going to be a big fight. All right. So let's, let's, let's break this down. So you're saying June is when McConnell, Leader McConnell wants to have a vote? June? Well, I mean, uh, vote on something. I mean, he's basically looking at business liability. That's his top priority, is providing some kind of safe harbor for businesses that reopen. Uh, You know, this probably has some kind of proviso within it that they have to follow, you know, common sense regulations as far as providing masks or other equipment or sanitizer for their workers. But if they follow those rules, they will be immune from from lawsuits. Uh, He is uh, raising the specter of trial attorneys, you know, sucking millions of dollars out of the economy. Who's taking the lead on those bills? besides McConnell in the Senate? Uh, Corden is, is the one on the Corden. business liability. He, he is, uh, has drafted something. And it, it has, there's different aspects to it. You know, they're looking at uh, also for healthcare workers, the idea that, you know, in this crisis that uh, patients or people who uh, loved ones of those who died could, could come out and, and ensue uh, over COVID. Um, one aspect, interestingly, though, that the Chamber of Commerce and others have looked for is a sort of uh, uh, immunity for uh, corporations from uh, shareholder lawsuits over the failure to anticipate COVID. That's something the Chamber of Commerce told me that they would like to see, but that has not yet uh, gotten a Republican buy-in uh, uh, in the Senate. Okay, so this is what's and then PPP. I mean, there's bipartisan support for changes to PPP. Is that going to advance? I mean, that's not stimulus, but do you think that'll happen relatively quickly? I mean, Mark well, is on board with it. Yeah, and you know, we heard from uh, some aides over in the Senate today that they may try to uh, get unanimous consent to to pass that in the Senate as soon as tomorrow. They're working on that, but of course, anytime a train is leaving the station in Congress, someone else wants to hitch a ride. So there are some complications in that. But one possibility is that the Senate would sort of clear this bill this week by getting everybody to agree, and then it would be voted on in the House. Now, the idea is that uh, a lot of uh, businesses uh, feel that they only have eight weeks in which to uh, spend the money on payroll. They want a longer window as they're starting to ramp up, uh, you know, and bring people back uh, when it's safe. And they also want a longer repayment period. It's currently two years for the forgivable uh, uh, loans, and that's the, the not uh, used for payroll to be repaid. It'd be a longer period. And then also be able to use more of the, the – right now, you need to spend 75% of the money on payroll. They want a higher percent for those in a sort of high-rent areas. Places with a lot of six right, right. Slow down. So you, you, you. The thing I love about Eric Watson is he has so much information. He knows <laughs> the beat better than anybody at any publication. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm like, I should get my notebook out because you know everything. So <laughs> Sorry with the for PPP, the, the audience. Yeah. Yeah. With PPP, because this is important to a lot of people who are coming home from work, and 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 they're in their cars and they're trying to follow what this means. 
lay it out crystal clear for us. What changes are they trying to make to PPP, and how soon might that happen? Okay, well, this is a program that basically allowed small businesses to get forgivable loans, meaning if they right. spent the money on payroll, they wouldn't have to pay the money back. Uh, but they only had they had to quickly get the money out the door within eight weeks, and they're finding that's a challenge, and they're worried about the ability, you know, getting stuck with having to repay money they don't get out quick enough. So that would give them a longer window to do that. And they also said that you have to spend 75% of the money you got on payroll. But they're finding in some industries, if you have a high rent or, or fixed utility costs, for example, we're using a lot of power. Uh, they want to be able to cover more of that, uh, and, and and it looks like by bipartisan support, uh, really, to do that. Interestingly, interesting pairing: Dean Phillips, a, a freshman uh, Democrat from Minnesota, and Chip Roy, who is very, very conservative Texas Republican, have, have paired up on a bill. And, and Pelosi now said that will come to a vote next week. So, you know, an interesting alignment of stars. Now, does that become the seed? For another stimulus bill, potentially, uh, you know, there there is uh, some some uh, appetite. Interestingly, though, we saw some tweets from Cory Gardner, perhaps the most in- endangered, or one of the two most endangered Senate Republicans up for re-election, who was really going after his own Senate leadership, saying we should not be going on this nearly two-week recess and uh, without passing more stimulus. Uh, you know, there's a real sense that he wants to see Congress acting rather than uh, just doing nominations and going home for, for recess next right. week for Memorial Day. Eric Watson laying it all out for us. So what I just gathered there, one, changes to PPP in the short term, two, the earliest you could get a vote in the Senate is June, and three, McConnell saying, hey, he, he wants to make sure that if you reopen, you're not going to be held liable in the court of law. Eric Watson, Bloomberg Congressional Reporter, thanks so much for uh, dishing your notebook with us. Much more ahead. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. It's only Wednesday, but let's stay in the moment. Let's focus on the now. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and we are pivoting to 2020. Speaking of staying in the now, Max Abelson, Bloomberg Businessweek reporter. Maxie, how are you, buddy? I haven't talked to you in so long. How are things? How are you holding up? I was just thinking to myself, I was trying to think, when is the last time I've seen Kevin's face? We were it's at the Trump Hotel. Long. We were at the Trump Hotel, and we were people-watching in the lobby of the former U.S. Postal Service building. I hear the Postal Service we is going bankrupt. And I ordered bacon. Remember that bacon they had at the Trump Hotel? And like they hang it on like the, cl- the clothes lines, and they have the, the French fries. I always got the fries. They're like trying to sell you all this expensive food. I said, I want French fries with Max, Max Abelson. Max has this great story out in Business Week called Biden's Wall Street Pals. Think they have his ear despite the snubs. Why do you think can can Joe Biden really rein it, lure in? Not rein in. Is he going to rein in Wall Street, or is he trying to lure in Wall Street, Max? It's a truly good question. I mean, just to go back a second, the whole premise of the Trump D.C. hotel where you and I watched all those people come and go is that Trump has been so comfortable surrounding himself with Wall Street in the last few years. Obviously, Steven Mnuchin is a former Goldman Sachs partner. Gary Cohen, his first economic advisor, was a big Wall Street guy. Joe Biden is in a much more precarious position now because there's a whole 
flank of the Democratic Party that basically exists because it has rebelled against Wall Street's power and Wall Street's influence over the Democratic Party. And Biden, on the one hand, has to you know, get as much progressive support as he can. But on the other hand, you have really important people around him who are from Wall Street, and it's going to be really interesting to see how he handles that tension, and that's what the story's about. But see, what's AOC going to do? What's Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat, Massachusetts, Kennedy's a seat? What, what, what are they going to do? Because they've got his ear, too, and, and he needs that base of the progressive party if he wants to ascend his candidacy. So what, what my story here for Bloomberg News did is started with that exact moment when, remember, the Biden campaign actually in concert with, with, the, uh, with his former rival, Bernie Sanders, came out with this economic policy task force that was supposed to be kind of a bridge between Sanders and Biden. And as you say, AOC was on that list. My story started because I talked to a longtime Wall Street figure named Charles Myers. He used to be the uh, vice chairman at Evercore. Charles Myers told me about sitting in his, you know, Park Avenue home office, clicking the list of the economic policy task force names and being like, wow, I don't recognize anyone here. I don't see any of the, my Wall Street friends. But what he told me and what a lot of Wall Street people have told me is that that does not matter and that Wall Street people feel totally comfortable that they have Biden's ear. And some of them even feel, you know, confident enough that they've already begun thinking like, mm, what kind of what, what kind of White House job could I get if Biden wins? So, I mean, it, it's very Clintonian many, in many ways, the, the, what, uh, what Joe Biden's doing. But I still am very, I, I don't think he has yet to unveil a massive economic proposal as to what he's going to do. I mean, our colleagues at Bloomberg have reported that he's going to have to somehow time over the summer release and unveil a new type of economic plan. But as it relates domestically, as it relates to... Uh, China and the U.S.-China relations, where any plan that he, any plan that he puts out, obviously will be picked apart. But I, I think would you would you gather that Senator Warren and and the AOC crowd, the progressive wing Bernie Sanders crowd, that they're going to be particularly interested to see where he falls on this on this uh, ideological spectrum. Particularly interested is exactly right. And I love what you said about calling this Clintonian because, you know, it really is Bill Clinton in the 90s who brings in a former Goldman Sachs, not just a former Goldman Sachs partner, a former co-CEO of Goldman Sachs, Bob Rubin. And Clinton really embraces a certain kind of pro-Wall Street democratic centrism that you know, in some ways, Obama, obviously, Republicans look at Obama as this big progressive. But the truth of the matter is Clinton and then in su to some extent Obama and now, of course, Biden are very much part of a legacy that's influenced by not just people like Bob Rubin, but someone like Morgan Stanley's Tom Nides or someone I mentioned Evercore before, someone like uh, your Roger Altman's. These are really, really important people. They're very close to people like Larry Summers. They're very close to uh, exactly. You got Larry. All of these people the have had a, a, this had a is, lot. Of see, I don't want to interrupt you, time. Max, but this is such this is such a great story because what you're doing. I mean, this taps into the Democratic interfamily feud. That's been going on for decades between the Rubenites and the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, what what do we know about who Biden's been fundraising with? They're having Zoom. I guess they're all on Zoom now. <laughs> I mean, like, what are they? Well, how are they even doing these swanky fundraisers? But who's he fundraising with, Max? 
it's very helpful to look back on the in-person fundraisers because, I, if I'm remembering correctly, at the Carlisle Hotel, you've got our, you've got who do we just mention? We mentioned Ruben. You've got Stephen Scher, the literally one of the most powerful people inside Goldman Sachs. You've got, I, I believe, Eric Mindick was the youngest guy to ever make partner inside Goldman Sachs. All of those people were in the Carlisle when Biden said something that's, you know, in my mind, it's famous. It's not world famous exactly. But he said that we may not want to demonize anybody who has made money. You know, in other words, while Sanders and Warren are going out and, you know, if not demonizing Wall Street, then certainly proposing actual policy to cut big banks and to, you know, to, to, to break up big banks and to tax the wealthy. Biden is coming out inside the Carlisle Hotel and saying, look, I don't want to demonize you guys. Now, of course, Biden is singing a slightly different song. I, I believe he tweeted about Wall Street just in the last 48 hours. I'm not sure if even any of these guys, Summers, Rubin, Nides, I'm not sure if any of them really know what's going to happen over the next few months. I mean, for all we know, Biden is going to veer left because he has to, or he'll embrace Wall Street because that's what he's done over the last few decades, speaking generally. It's up in the air. It really makes his vice presidential pick all the more interesting. Max, what have you been streaming in this uh, pandemic? Thank you so much for asking. I of course. Am I always save the, the best third, for last, Max. Very important. The third season of Twin Peaks with my girlfriend, Twin Peaks of Return. I highly recommend it to everyone out there listening. One, wow. one of my favorite things ever. See, I was, a, I was a big Lost guy back when I was a kid growing up in Delco. I watched, uh, I watched uh, Lost. But, you know, I hear I hear good things about Twin Peaks. Now that The Last Dance is done, I'm done streaming that. I got nothing. Max Abelson, great, great story. Check it out. He's a Bloomberg Business Week reporter. Check it out on all Bloomberg Cross platforms. It dives into former Vice President Joe Biden's fundraising. Thank you, Max, for your time. Stay safe. Be well, my friend. Coming up next, we dive into foreign policy and artificial intelligence. My name is Kevin Cirilli, and David Tafiori is just around the corner. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Talking to Max Abelson made me hungry. Made me hungry. We used to go and get food at the Trump Hotel. We would get all of those. But they had the mac and cheese. Remember that? Mac and cheese. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Joining us on the line, someone I haven't talked with since all this started. You know, Barada and I were huddled. We were talking. Where, whatever happened to all of our regulars? We <laughs> they left us. David Tafiori's on the line. He's uh, he has got this great piece out on thehill.com. Will coronavirus help ISIS? He is the former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor. David, how are you? What have you been up to? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Well, I'm just hunkered down and being safe and reading and writing and enjoying a little. What bit. are you reading? What are you reading? You know, right now I'm reading the book "The Plague" by Albert Camus. Wow, uh, which has little some... little dense, buddy. I mean, I was hoping you were yeah, going to say I don't dense, know, but it has some, some relevant implications for right now. 
All right. The last thing I want to read about is a plague. I'll tell you. I want to read about a vaccine. I want to read. About, I want to read about things opening up and people being cured of illnesses. That's what I want to read about, David. All right. Will well, the coronavirus help ISIS? Make your case. Yes or no. It looks like it is helping ISIS, and certainly ISIS is doing everything it can to take advantage of this. For instance. ISIS got a lot of support in 2014 when it took territory in Iraq and Syria by doing prison breaks. They've already attempted a couple of prison breaks during coronavirus, knowing that the prisons are not as well guarded and knowing also that the prisoners inside the prisons are likely to riot because of their fear of getting coronavirus. So that's one way it's helping. Another big way it's helping is that the U.S. military, which has a presence in Iraq and still has some presence in Syria, does training programs for local forces to fight ISIS. They've halted those programs in order to protect our troops from COVID-19. They've also halted on-the-ground anti-ISIS operations. So that gives ISIS some breathing room they really haven't had since 2016. But I would note that the U.S. is still doing airstrikes against ISIS. Hopefully that will continue until our troops on the ground are able to get back to normal operations. David Tafuri is on the line. And for those who don't know him, mean, you see him all over cable news. Uh, he's, a, he's a regular. He's also an international lawyer who served at the U.S. Department of State's Rule of Law Coordinator for Iraq at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad uh, during the height of the Iraq War. And... You know, one of the case, one of the points that you that you lay out in your piece, brilliant piece at thehill.com, uh, with talking about how terrorism has been impacted by the pandemic and, and COVID nineteen, is just how much more important now our diplomacy is uh, on the ground because uh, on the ground missions are are have been reduced. And so, can you just talk to me a little bit about why diplomacy is so so? even more important perhaps now in that region, especially as the airstrikes, as you mentioned, are continued to be carried out? Yes, I'm really glad you mentioned that, because with the military narrowed down to just doing airstrikes, we, our, our main way of engaging is now through diplomacy. And it's super important, especially right now in Iraq, where we have a brand-new prime minister. He was just ratified by the parliament in Baghdad. He's actually pro-U.S. He's the guy that the U.S. wanted to become prime minister. There were other candidates before him who were more pro-Iran. So we lucked out on that one. But we need to stay engaged with him and especially need to make sure he puts in place policies that will make the Sunni Arabs in Iraq, who sometimes— uh, population, parts of their population support ISIS. He needs to put in place policies that will make them feel enfranchised so they will not look the other way as ISIS tries to attempt its resurgence. Similarly, in Syria, we have some forces on the ground, the SDF, that the U.S. military has been working with. We need to continue our diplomatic engagement with them and provide them with, with support so that they continue to fight ISIS and also be pro-U.S. so we have some influence in Syria. So just, this is this is kind of an outside-the-box question, and it's a little rudimentary, but uh, I think you're a good person to ask. I mean, have, have, have these groups, these terrorist groups in the region, I mean, have they actually been impacted by the virus itself? Have they had to adopt uh, the precautions? And, you know, we've seen what's played out reportedly in Iran with how Iran has just been completely pummeled by the coronavirus. What about the other terrorist groups in, in the region? Kevin, that's a question that a number of uh, us have been wondering about. There's not a lot of data or information to determine whether they're worried about it from their own 
you know, personal uh, impact on their health. But I think you can assume that if you're a young military age male in your 20s or 30s, which are most of them are, who join ISIS, and you joined ISIS in the first place, which means you were willing to take significant risks to your life, even put on a suicide vest, you're probably not that worried <laughs> about contracting COVID-19. It's the least of the risks in your life at this point, given well the um, fatality rate. So well my guess is they're not that worried. Fascinating. But, but I mean, but when you, then when you see what happens in Iran, though, I mean, then, but, you know, then they should be. It's, 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 it's yeah, I mean, but I, yes, I, I, something tells me they're not, they're not doing uh, rapid testing in ISIS. Um, let me, let's exactly. move on. I want to, I want to ask you about uh, U.S. China relations and, and this issue of, of diplomacy, because yesterday we had Joel Rubin on the program. He's the former undersec- deputy undersecretary, deputy assistant secretary. I apologize. Joel Rubin, former deputy assistant secretary for legislative affairs in the Obama administration. And he was making this case from the left that, a Biden presidency would ramp up diplomatic efforts on the ground in China and, you know, and, and saying, arguing that the, that the Trump administration had cut diplomats in the region and, and whatnot. What do you think as an expert and, and largely an apolitical expert, uh, David Tafuri, who's joining us, what do you think needs to be done in terms of how to get China to cooperate more with the, with the international community including Europe, including the United States, through the World Health Organization? Well, I don't always agree with Secretary of State Pompeo and President Trump, but I think they are right to be criticizing China's response, to be pushing for an independent investigation of its response to the coronavirus and how the coronavirus uh, was originally contracted by people in Wuhan. And I also think that they are right to think about ways to disincentivize similar behavior by China in, in, in the future. Because if China doesn't learn from this, this could easily happen again. And the problem in, with China is both there was an in, you know, intentional negligence uh, in not reporting faster, and there was also systemic problems because people in China were already scared to report when they, the virus was first being contracted. They didn't want to report it up the chain. So it's going to be difficult to address but that means there have to be significant ramifications for China, whether it is trade, whether it is you know, coordinating with other countries, as we're already trying to do in order to leave China out, exclude it from certain aspects. And also, I think it's fair that WHO deserves some criticism, too, because they accepted some of the explanations from China. And WHO has a role in this. It should accept that criticism and make some changes. So it also performs better next time. You know, and, and you know, just for China to, to appear at the World Health Organization last week and to announce $2 billion worth to contribute to the pandemic recovery, that's pennies, is it not, in terms of the response that it's actually going to take the, because of the econ- just the economic impact alone on what the pandemic has had on the, on the international community? It is. And Secretary of State Pompeo was critical of China uh, for that reason, because it's such a small amount, given the massive global impact. And I think Secretary of State Pompeo didn't mention this, but he co- also could have said the U.S. has already given a billion dollars to foreign countries right. to help with COVID-19 response. And it's not to mention Congress has- two trillion or three trillion in Congress. Go ahead. Not to interrupt you. 
Exactly. And but even but but even as we're dealing with this crisis right now, we're already still thinking about other countries and giving money for other countries. Congress has appropriated two billion. So we've already appropriated about two billion for the State Department and USAID to help foreign countries, which equals what China has pledged. My guess is we're more likely to follow through on that. China may not follow through on that, and probably more is going to come from the U.S. government. So China's $2 billion, it's not enough, it's too little, and Secretary of State Pompeo is right to criticize China. David Sefiori, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for, for checking in, and uh, hey, report back on that book, but maybe read a light one after that, David, you know what I mean? Lighten it up. You know, you can read you can read a guilty pleasure. David Sefiori, our good friend of the program, coming up much more uh, on international politics and policy. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. What a beautiful day today in Washington in the nation's capital. Kind of. It was kind of overcast, cloudy. But, uh... It's hump day. We're halfway through the week. Congrats, folks. Two more days till the weekend. But I, one, someone I know said, <laughs> someone I know said to me, you know, they only have the long weekend and then the mini weekend these days because because when they work from home, they you know they lose track of the days. So like Monday through Friday is the long weekend, and then the mini weekend is Saturday and Sunday. But I'm like, what happens on Memorial Day when you have a three day? It's a three day weekend. Are you going to the shore? What do you do? Do you get a haircut before you go down the shore or no? It's, it's, it's the, the water cooler conversation that everybody's having right now as we socially distance ourselves. You know, Mayor Bowser of Washington, D.C., she's going to announce tomorrow some update. Some update on the guidelines. We'll, we'll report on that. We'll talk about that. And I'm excited because on Friday we actually have a special segment on Friday with Congressman Max Rose. He's got, we're going to talk with him about the legislation on uh, coronavirus and everything, but he's also got this piece of bipartisan legislation uh, that he wants to introduce that would protect youth sports. I want to talk to him about that, and my friends over at DC Scores are going to join us as well to talk about the importance of youth sports and how schools may or may not be playing and, and all of it. It's so incredibly important. I'm excited for that show. That'll be Friday right here. On Bloomberg Sound On. Okay, let's talk about something else that has gained traction throughout the last couple of weeks, and we've been talking about it. That's the rise of artificial intelligence and contact tracing to stop the spread of the virus. How do we do this in a democracy? You know, how do we grapple with these types of questions in America and in the Western world? We've got an expert on the line, Dr. Michael Chewy, partner at the McKinsey Global Institute. McKinsey's business and economics research arm. We had Susan London. Uh, Dr. Chewy, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, talk to me about technological and medical innovations that could lead to not only a cure, but new growth. 
Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Um, we uh, just recently published uh, a research report looking at what we call the biorevolution. And as you know, you point out, suddenly everyone is you know because of the the, the tremendous challenge, humanitarian challenge, and, and and in some cases tragedy of COVID nineteen, people are suddenly suddenly realizing you know what biology can affect uh, all of us, whether or not we're you know in healthcare or agriculture, but uh, elsewhere. What we try to do and set out in this research was try to understand what the potential of all of these biological technologies might be uh, going forward. We really think we've hit an inflection point. We've seen the cost of sequencing, you know, the human genome go from three billion and soon it'll be a hundred bucks. You know, that's advancing faster than Moore's law. Now we can manipulate genes using techniques like CRISPR. And what we actually discovered was the incredible breadth of potential application. Just as you said, potentially actually, you know, being able to create vaccines or therapies, you know, for the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes, uh, you know, COVID-19, but also, you know, what impact this might have on, you know, the clothes we wear. Um, We can now use fermentation, the same type of process that, um, you know, we use to to bake bread or or make beer. Wait, 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 Uh, you're losing me. Chewy, Chewy, you're you're losing me. Dr. Michael (laughs) Okay, wait, wait. We're talking about curing the coronavirus, and then I'm just hearing, like, the genes and the bread. Wait, I think this is fascinating, and truthfully, we've been talking about this throughout the past couple of weeks, but walk me through this connection of how this would work, because I don't think people know, and it really is the future. So so in plain speak, because this is way above what I know about, so go ahead. You bet. Look, the coronavirus is a virus, right? And so it is, you know, the, the, the important part of it is is basically, um, you know, biological code, um, you know, with, with this chemical car called RNA. You know, some of the technologies that have been developed allow us to, you know, sequence that code, actually be able to deprogram, figure out what, what causes this virus to operate. Um, and that's a technology which has, you know, become much, much faster, much, much cheaper. The first SARS you know, uh, virus. Um, it took months in order to sequence it. You know, this one took weeks to do. But what's interesting about that is that same technology can be used not only to diagnose other diseases, but to understand all kinds of other processes. And by the way, as people are working on vaccines, we can actually reprogram those sorts of things. So now, for instance, you know, not only can we understand the impact of a virus, we can reuse that same type of technology to understand how other processes work and then reprogram them. And so yeast is a biological process. Uh, we can reprogram yeast in order to you know, produce other types of materials. So not only can genetic code cause disease, we can use that type of genetic code in order to produce materials. See, I hear and that's this. an amazing thing. You know, I hear this, and, and you're a lot smarter than me, but you know, I hear this and I, and I think, okay, then why don't we have a vaccine? Or why, don't we, why aren't we able to reopen the economy and have all of these tests? You know, I mean, so on the one hand, for us, <laughs> for us who aren't as, as intelligent on these issues as you are, it's frustrating because we're hopeful about the science and what's what's and the private sector and the and the the resurgence of this and how to get out of this, but it's frustrating because it's like, well, what's taking so long? But let me ask you a, a broader question because there are some serious democratic lowercase d issues here uh, as it relates to this science to this technology uh, with these cures. So how do we balance? the right to privacy, the right to our, our freedoms, with also trying to protect society. 
Yeah, so point number one, the reason why we don't have all this stuff yet is it's actually hard to do. You know, while we've had all, all of these advances, it's actually hard to do scientifically. And then when you think about it, you know, in the vaccine case, you have to make sure you have safety, efficacy, and then do testing. Same thing if you're bringing something to market. To, to this question about, you know, what about the, you know, these risks? We, we actually do identify a number of risks which are both unique to these technologies as well as echoes of those of previous technologies. And in this case, we, you know, in terms of, um, the the lowercase democratic values and how you think about privacy, for instance, that is something that is an echo of what we've seen in digital. So we always we do worry about you know this 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 trail of um, you know breadcrumbs that we leave on the internet as we go ahead and and use our web browsers or use our mobile phones. Um, there's similar kinds of concerns uh, you know are around our genetics, for instance, right? So you know there's nothing more personal than the the genes that I made up of, made up of. And then if you start to think about some of these questions about, you know, if, if we're trying to do contact tracing, for instance, you know, how do we both do that in order to promote the public health um, as well as, you know, ensure that, you know, that information isn't misused? And so those are some of the things both the technologists as well as the public policy people and public health people need to grapple with. Dr. Michael Chuby's on the line. He's a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute, McKinsey's business and economics research arm. They've got this incredible new study out called The Bio-Revolution, Innovations, Transforming Economies, Societies, and Our Lives. It's optimistic. You know, when I read it, uh, Michael, I was very, very optimistic because you guys report that at least 45%, think about this, 45% of the global disease burden could be addressed with the capabilities that are scientifically conceivable today. Today, already. And so I, I, I'm wondering, I mean, this is a very optimistic uh, report. Um, and, and, and what was one of the findings that you found that, that brought you optimism and hope? Because so much of the, the news flow, uh, to quote my friend Tom Keen, my friend and mentor Tom Keen, has been, uh, you know, very down, for lack of a better yeah. word. No, look, I, I, we certainly agree that there are a lot of you know risks, as we just talked about. But we yep. did see all this you know positive potential, as you said, the ability to address you know diseases. In fact, what we've been able to find, um, you know, are for instance the ability to t to completely cure what would have otherwise been a lifelong disease. Some of these blood diseases, for instance, right. uh, thalassemia is one of them, sickle cell. Wow. With a single treatment, that's incredible. That is. Um, We're going to have to leave it there. Hey, come back on and talk to us more about this because we could do a whole show on this. And um, it really is remarkable. And it's hopeful. It's optimistic, you know, that a lot of the research that we already have available to us uh, is going to be the, the way out of this. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Thanks for listening. Uh, and tune in tomorrow for more special coverage of the global policy and politics around the coronavirus. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.